Hello, and welcome to this event looking at what the public's expectations are for levelling up and whether the government can actually deliver on those. I'm Gemma Tetlow, Chief Economist here at the IFG, and I'm really pleased you're all able to join us today, um, both in the room and online. The government obviously has big ambitions for improving economic outcomes and well-being across the country, particularly in areas that have traditionally lagged behind. This formed a big part of the Conservatives' pitch for government in 2019, and back in February, the government set out 12 missions for what they want to achieve on levelling up. But we're now only, uh, perhaps at most, a couple of years away from the next election. So I think it's a useful time halfway through this parliament to ask, what are, the government, what are the public expecting from the government and can they really deliver? I'm really pleased that we're holding this event today in partnership with Lloyds, who are kindly supporting this and a programme of work here at the IFG on levelling up. To help us discuss these issues today, we have a great uh, panel of speakers. Uh, so on my right, we have Vicky Cook, who's a founding partner at Britain Thinks. On my far right, we have Alex Norris, um, who is Shadow Minister for Leveling Up Housing Communities and Local Government. On my left, uh, we have Andrew Lua, who is member of the Leveling Up Housing and Communities Select Committee and Vice President of the Local Government Association. Um, I think perhaps Interestingly, we'll get into, in our discussions, uh, both Andrew and Alex come from a local government background, so it'll be interesting to hear what part local government's going to play in all of this. And on my far left, uh, we have Thomas Pope, who is Deputy Chief Economist here at the IFG and leading our programme of work on levelling up. Um, just a few brief housekeeping notes before we get started. Um, for people who are here in the room, uh, when we get to the Q&A section, please do just raise your hand in the traditional way. Um, for people who are online, um, please do start sending in your questions using the Q&A panel on the right-hand side of your screen. If you see a question that's similar to one you wanted to ask, um, please do sort of upvote that to, so we know it's popular. Um, and if you feel happy doing so, please do tell us your name and where you're tuning in from. Um, it's always interesting to know who we're talking to. We'll be live-tweeting this event from the at IFG events Twitter account using the hashtag IFG leveling up. So please do follow and tweet along. Uh, the event is obviously on the record, um, and the video from today's event will be available on our website within 24 hours in case you miss any or want to watch it back. Um, so without further ado, um, let's start with opening comments. Um, Vicky, you at Britain Thinks obviously do a lot of monitoring of public opinion. What's your sense of what the public expect from levelling up? Are some of the missions more important than others? Um, great question. Uh, so I guess I'm going to start by saying right now the public don't expect a whole lot. Uh, trust in government, as you all know, is incredibly low. Um, and so there's a real sense from the public, particularly in the areas that are of most interest in levelling up, have heard it all before, things don't actually happen, and that there's a real concern that this is actually a lot of hot air. Um, having said that, there is some... So there was a, a YouGov poll at the end of last year that said that 76% of people had heard of levelling up, but then when you said, what does it mean, only 26% had any real idea. Now, that may well have changed a bit since then, but fundamentally, people understand the notion of it, but they don't understand the reality of it. Um, and about half of the population say that they think their local area is under-invested in, so they should be a candidate for levelling up. Um, but when you actually dig a little bit deeper and talk about potential impact, that same survey by YouGov showed that only 7% Feel that felt that levelling up would lead to more money being spent in their communities. So there's this sense in many communities that it's unlikely to happen to them. Um, 
And I think that's kind of really interesting because also when you talk to people about what do they mean by their community, it turns out that actually very quickly people are talking about their neighbourhood. So they're talking about really quite a small area. So that they will typically be talking about things that are within about 10 minutes of where they live. Mm. That's where they want to see change. So even talking about something that's happening in the next town or the next city, it, or even the other side of where you live, feels quite remote from people and they don't necessarily understand how that will have an impact on their lives. And their starting point is really quite straightforward. They want to have somewhere that's okay to live, somewhere that's pleasant to live, somewhere that has a school that they think cares about the kids. So the, so the missions, the starting point is, what's it going to do for my very local area? So the, you know, at pass one, it's all about what's going to happen on the high street, what you're going to do in terms of impact of things like rubbish on the high street, dog crap on the high street, in, in my area. What are you going to do to make this area just a little bit more pleasant and feel a little bit more safe? What are you going to do about antisocial behaviour? What are you going to do that makes my day-to-day -day life better? Once you kind of continue the conversation, then they start thinking about the kind of more structural changes, but it's very much through the eyes of education. You know, I want my kid to have access to a good education uh, in a school that cares about them and can support them. Uh, I want to have access to good jobs. Uh, but good jobs might be, and we shouldn't in any way diss you know, somebody being a local hairdresser, working in the local Tesco. Those are good jobs for many people. So I think you have to be very careful about how you talk about what we're trying to achieve. Um, and then it's also about improving crime and, and antisocial behaviour very locally. So people's locus is very, very, very immediate. I think the other huge challenge now is managing expectations um, because the missions are big and bold, but actually mapping out the journey of what am I going to see in a year's time to know that you're on track so that I can believe this has any kind of real currency or credibility. <coughs> um, I think 2030 feels an awfully long way away and you know, your kid who's just started secondary school will be well out of secondary school by then, so it's all too late for them. So I think it's actually what are you going to do now? <coughs> How do you, not talking about big, grand, huge ticket items, but tell me what I'm going to see in my local community. Tell me that that's going to change, and then I'll watch it, and if that changes, I'll start to believe in this a little bit more. Thank you. Andrew, so, I mean, this is a real challenge that you're facing. Your party obviously made some big promises on this in the 2019 election. What do you think the public really expects from you, and do you think you'll be able to deliver for the next election? Well... I mean, leveling up initially was, was, was a slogan, but it was one that sort of struck a chord. I think during the 2019 election, it wasn't as key as, as get Brexit done, and it wasn't as key as, as keep out Corbyn either, even more than liking Boris Johnson or not. Not liking Corbyn was a fairly strong theme. So initially, it was a bit like that uh, Simpsons episode when uh, you've got Gabbo is coming and these posters all over town and Homer's standing there staring at this Gabbo is coming poster and Lisa says, I don't think they're giving you enough to go on. Um, but in an equal sense to that, it's, a, it's as well as being sort of slightly hard to define initially, it's everything as well. And that's the, that's the sort of challenge of it, as well as it being a thing that needed to be defined. One definition of levelling up is, is everything in domestic politics, in a sense, opportunity, people's futures, fairness, uh, and so apart from sort of defence and foreign policy, which have obviously come rather more to the fore again of late, it, it, was, it was politics. Um, so there's buy-in because people buy into the idea that they'd like life to be better in their local area, as we've said, to, 
uh, to improve. So therefore, yes, the public, uh, in this generalist sense that Vicky's already touched on, but, 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 but then conservative MPs, but yes, across the political spectrum. Would the label endure if there was a different conservative prime minister? Maybe, maybe not. If there was a change of government, would the label endure? Probably not. Um, in fact, I was slightly surprised that it wasn't more pushback uh, from the opposition to, a, to changing a government department to a political um, objective. That probably makes me sound very old-fashioned, but I was slightly surprised, you know, and I'm, um, you know, um, quite surprised that there wasn't more pushback on that. But, but what will survive, whether the label survives or not, and this is what makes it different than the big society or some other labels that have come and gone, what's behind it, I think, will endure, but then you could probably argue that it had pre been preceded as well. Um, maybe that new way of doing things that, that the levelling up white paper hints at or alludes to and suggests may endure as well, and that would probably be, be more important um, uh, in, in some ways. Um, so I don't think that the public would, would expect the, the, the really big ticket items of, of life expectancy uh, increasing or GDP per head in areas of the country being much closer than they are now within two years um, because they are such huge sticky issues and in terms of GDP and other regional disparities they've existed for at least a century so in a sense it would be a, a poverty of ambition for the government to say yeah you know these things that have existed for a century we're going to have them all sorted out by the time of the next general election so I suspect there'll be a need, as you've said, to demonstrate some initial progress. And you know, there's lists of billions of pounds of leveling up fund, 4.8 billion, Towns Fund, High Street, 3.6, 2.6 share prosperity, 1.6 brownfield, regeneration, etc. Plus a whole load of transport spending, education spending, and health spending. What I was therefore surprised by in the missions is that they are quite heavily spending focused rather than tax concessions focused. And perhaps also the area I'm most interested in is mission 12, which is the devolution element of it. Um, there's some challenges in, 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 delivering, in delivering that as well. And there's challenges in getting this across in a current party gate, beer gate, Ukraine, cost of living crisis atmosphere as well. I mean, Michael Gove has, has already said that uh, cost of living crisis and inflation is going to make levelling up goals uh, much more difficult. So I suppose the message for the Conservatives in 2024, I'm speaking slightly in third person there, the, the message for us in, in 2024 is, is to say that we've successfully laid the foundations for this rather than trying to make people feel that levelling up has been achieved in two, two and a half years from the publication of a white paper. I mean, as I say, my main passion with this is number 12, is devolution. Um, I'm chairman of the all-party group for devolution, as well as being on the levelling up select committee. And we've, we've said, president of the LGA, I'm a former county council leader. And that's informing my passion for number 12 in this and, and trying to navigate that way through because I've served at town, district, county, regional, EU Committee of the Regions, MEP and an MP, 
I think, without wishing to be too vain, I've got the broadest range of governance experience in the country, um, but it's led me to believe that the further down that list you go, the more you actually achieve for people in their day-to-day -day experience. Thank you. Alex, um, as Andrew said, levelling up is a sort of, it's a Tory tagline, um, but the, the issues underneath that are things that people across the political spectrum have been concerned about for a, a long time. What do you think of this agenda? Do you think it's going to deliver for the, the issues that matter to people? Well, I'd, I'd hope it'd be you know, axiom axiomatic that an incoming Labour government would want to tackle inequalities. You know, that's what incoming Labour governments always want to do. Traditionally, we might see that perhaps through a class lens. What we're talking here is regional. And again, I think that's something that whatever the framing, whatever the terminology, that would be at the forefront of our agenda in an election and then hopefully in government after the next election. I mean, in terms of what we've seen so far, whether it's the white paper, whether it's kind of the murmurings around yesterday, that obviously helps us perhaps define our alternative. I mean, you know, the, one of, we think, I don't think it's a secret, so we think that the, the white paper is modest. I think there's, there's a lot of fluff in there. The missions are great, you know, lots to agree with. You know, you could, everybody would find something in those 12 missions you'd expect. I don't think you'll find much of those actually that then meaningfully leads to much change. I think it felt a bit like bulk. Um, what we want to see done differently is, you know, we didn't expect to see billions and billions and billions added in public spending, but where money is added, that that go to communities, you know, as a, as a matter of right, rather than through this kind of debilitating uh, range. You know, Andrew mentioned a number of the funds, these constant beauty parades, which is a, you know, former uh, local authority cabinet member, they take up so much time, you get to this ridiculous situation where in Nottingham we don't talk to Derby or to Leicester, because you don't talk to them about their bids in case you give them a good idea and then they win and you don't. It's a ludicrous way to kind of pass that public spending. So at, at a global level, yes, we want to see public spending added, but we want that to be more kind of by right. And of course, all of those funds don't, won't counteract what's been lost in local authority cuts over the last, the last 12 years. But actually, more sophisticated than that, and, and what you'll see from our kind of counter offer, is we want to see things shifted from Whitehall to Town Hall. Exactly as I, my analysis is exactly as Andrew says. You know, I've, I haven't done all those rungs of the ladders, but I've done, I've done many of them. And you know, what, what I know is that local leadership is best because we know our own communities. And of course, that doesn't apply to defence, foreign policy, or you know, major kind of taxation. But in general, local decision making is better. So let's get things out of the centre. We're a very centralised country for one that's you know still you know relatively in population terms. We're not so big that we have to have that, that we couldn't have uh, better kind of localism. Um, get those things out, so skills funding, those are better decisions, better taken locally, get all the money, whether that's at a local level, whether that's a sub-regional level, regional level, you know, get that out of, out of the centre, that, that's a, a, you know, kind of a, a second component. And then finally, on, on devolution, I think, again, that's one of, one of my major interests as it is uh, for, for Andrew. And that's, for me, it's, you know, there's excitement, we've just had a range of, of local elections, there is some excitement around the concept of mayors. Um, I think there is, you know, almost consensus the idea that, again, of, of moving those powers down uh, to communities, there's an appetite for that. I think we should be non-prescriptive on what that model is. You know, I think for Manchester, you know, my, my family all live in Manchester and they think the mayoral model's great and it works for them and that's what they want. I think it's slightly harder to explain when, was it, as it'll be in my community for Nottingham, Nottinghamshire, Derby and Derbyshire, that's, it's a, it's a less natural kind of footprint. I think we should have, we should be able to choose what our governance 
uh, model is for, but we should have access to the same powers. I think that that, you know, that sort of commonality. So again, that, that'll be part of the kind of the, the point of difference that, that we put as we go into the, the leveling up bill in, in the months to come. But just on the, just to finish on the, the 2024 point, and this is my major anxiety with all of this. I'm, and I, you know, I, I, one of the, the main things that's rubbish about being opposition is you always have to be critical, because I'm, I'm relentlessly optimistic. I think it's why I'm in the Labour Party. So I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic about everything. But the thing that gives me anxiety about this thing is that if you have such a tight deadline, because Andrew says, Andrew sets perhaps the, the bar at 100 years. I normally say 40 years, because I think about my community. We're a working class community. Um, we've got some of those profound social challenges in the country. It's not always been that way. 40 years ago, we, had, we were still a working class community, but we were prosperous one because we had skilled work. And that went, and nothing replaced it, and we've now got three generations of, of, of unemployment, all the challenges that come with that. So I kind of draw that line at that 40 years ago, you know, and you've got, since then, four decades of deindustrialization and globalization. And the idea that any one white paper or any sort of two-year plan or three-year plan or even five-year plan is going to turn that around is just creating expectation that you're going to disappoint. Um, and what I worry that that will drive us to is that levelling up will become about things. And that's where I suspect some of the, the money comes into it, as, as Andrew mentions, that in order to demonstrate that a community has been levelled up, for want of a much better phrase, there'll have to be something for everybody for their leaflets. So North East Derbyshire, you've got that medical centre. Uh, Bolsover, you, you've got... Um, You've got a joint service centre, it's an industrial park for you in Great Yarmouth. And the reality is, and this is kind of the unspoken part of, of, of levelling up, is that for 13 years in government, we did a lot of that. You know, for all the, for all the narrative of kind of left behind communities, if you drive through the Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire coalfields, you'll see a lot of improved public services. You'll see really well-built schools. You'll see medical centres. And all of those things are important, and I would always want that, whether it's Northampton, Nottingham, or anywhere in the country, we should have those, you know, the best facilities we possibly can. But they themselves do not change people's lives. And that's what we learned from our 13 years in government. Because if, people, you, know, if you did that tomorrow, if you went into Northampton and to Nottingham and built the best ever you know, kind of new hospital, if the reality is that people still went home as they are, as they did last night and as they will tonight, and they open the app that looks at their bank account and they're still short of money, then you've lost. And until, and obviously there's, there's things we have to do around cost of living now, but in general, until we've invested in people so that they have the skills to do good skilled work and we've invested in our regional economy so that there's the distribution of jobs so that they, you can access them in their communities, we will keep going around this cycle of, well, let's keep, you know, stick more money into the high streets. That's great, of course. I want hanging baskets and heritage frontages in my, in my town centre of Bullwell. That will be the bid we put into the levelling up fund round two. But the reality is that people, when I stand there in the market on Saturday morning, people don't have enough money in their pocket for the high street to be really vibrant. So you can keep giving it the lick of paint and you keep putting the love into it. And we've got a lot of love for it. But until you change that part of the equation, nothing really changes. And my anxiety is that political deadlines will push us to those short-term, quick gob of cash, drive up from Whitehall, fire 25 million, and then get back as soon as you can. And I, I think that's, that's a flawed model. And that, that's certainly in government what we would be seeking to do better. Thank you. Tom, so that's a good segue. You've really been focusing on what can be done to boost economic performance as part of the levelling up agenda. How feasible is it from your analysis for the government to demonstrate this in less than two years? Yeah, as all of the speakers have, have said, there is this kind of distinction, I think, that's come out in all each of them said between 
sort of short-term things that are maybe slightly more surface level, but could still be very important, and the kind of deep structural challenges. And to be honest, those deep structural challenges are going to be very hard to change quickly, because if you think about the types of forces that have driven that, the sort of globalization, agglomeration in cities, these are, are big things that have happened, as um, Alex and Andrew have said, over 40 or even 100 years. It's not going to take two years to reverse those. If you think about the types of policy that might start to make a difference there, you know, big infrastructure and transport investment, investment in skills, those are going to take time to pay off because you may start skilling someone up now, but you know, the, the good jobs that they can then have aren't going to come for a few years. We know that transport projects come for a long time. So it's, you know, it's unrealistic, I think, to expect progress, certainly in two years, and actually on some of those bigger, really changing the economic geography of the UK, even 2030, is relatively soon. So there's one example that people often go to internationally of where levelling up has happened is in Germany, um, and, and East Germany in particular. And actually, it's interesting that, at least in five years, if not in two years, you do see quite a lot of catch-up from East Germany to West Germany after reunification. Um, but I don't think we should necessarily expect that's something that could happen here for a couple of reasons. One, clearly the context there and the you know, change from a Soviet economy is a very different thing. But also, in Germany, the, the way that they got that initial sort of improvement was through lots of spending, through really you know, huge amounts of money, um, but then did have to continue beyond that. And if you look at, I think, the government's approach in the white paper um, to driving this transformation, it's not through a big bang at the start. It's through what they call rewiring Whitehall, getting the system reform right, devolving more powers so that over time decisions can be made better. Um, and hopefully over time that will, will drive a more balanced um, economy across the UK. But that's not the type of thing you'd expect to happen very quickly. It's going to happen due to sort of the accumulation of lots of decisions being made slightly better at a more appropriate level of government. Um, which I suppose does then come to what the government's focus before the white paper was, which I would characterise as much more of the short term. You know, the town fund and levelling up fund explicitly favoured projects that could be completed in time for 2024. Um, you, know, so you, you could see that, as, as Andrew says, as a sort of down payment, as a commitment. Um, and you know, those things could make a difference in, in some local places, but they aren't going to drive um, the really big transformation. I suppose the, the last thing I would say, reflecting both on what, what Vicky and Alex said about cost of living as well, um, Vicky mentioned that people's conception of kind of how things are going are very local. And actually, we think of levelling up in terms of, you know, is the gap between the northeast and London getting smaller, say? But if people are actually very locally focused, they're probably not looking out to London actually that much, and they're looking much more, as Alex says, at their bank accounts. And therefore, you know, levelling up, or at least a public perception of levelling up, is much easier if you're in a world of of lots of growth and you know, wages going up, and therefore you know, people's bank accounts are looking healthier, even if actually bank accounts are looking more healthy and going up more quickly in London. So I think that the problem here is that people may say, well, you know, the cost of living is, is so hard that all you, all you see is your personal situation. If that's not getting better, um, you know, you don't, you're not going to feel leveled up. Great. I mean, Vicky, can I come to you on that? that point, because we've, we've all sort of touched on this tension between the longer-term ambition of levelling up and the sort of immediate reality of high inflation, cost-of-living crisis. 
from kind of history and on public opinion, how difficult is it for sitting governments to get credit for things that are improving in the context of very weak economic conditions? I think very, very, very difficult, frankly. Um, I mean, right now, you know, the two things that are exercising people's minds are very much cost of living crisis, and that one's going up and up and up, and the other one is Ukraine and the kind of uh, impact of that. So that's what people are focusing on, trying to get them to think five, ten years out, maybe they're, maybe they're children, maybe they're grandchildren, when right now they can't feed their children, is really, really, really difficult. Um, and that's, I think, partly why it is important to, I think it's I totally agree about devolution. We've just done some work for New Local, which has been published this week, about community power involving people. And I think that's really important, but you have to, be, you have to manage that quite carefully because people don't want to take decisions, they want to be heard. Um, but there is a risk with that, that if you listen but don't respond, that then they lose trust. So I think in a world where we have very little trust at the moment, it is quite hard. And that's why I think at a very local level, as local as you can get, setting out in a really clear, coherent way, what the journey to change looks like, what people can see. So I, I agree that you know, things won't solve anything, but at least they might show good faith. You know, if you've said, the first thing we can do, because it's actually the quickest thing to do, is to have a school that doesn't have leaky roofs and windows and has enough teachers in it, slightly different part of the agenda, but there's no point one without the other, then you maybe can start to get people thinking, okay, there is some sincerity to this. If you can involve people at a local level, because at the moment, one of the staggering things from the new local thing is only 8% um, trust people in Whitehall and Westminster to make decisions that are relevant to their community. And that is a staggeringly low level. 53% trust people in their own community. So, so the more we can get community involvement, but there are an awful lot of places that aren't going to be leveled up. You know, 50% of the population think that they are in a place that needs to be levelled up. Well, there's going to be a lot of disappointment too. So I think it's incredibly hard. I mean, that's an interesting point. It's something we've sort of noticed and commented on here at IFG is so far levelling up is seeming to try to offer something to everyone. Um, certainly if you look at some of the different missions, you would prioritise different parts of the country depending on which you're looking at. So well-being is actually very low in London and high in Northern Ireland. But if you look at economic performance, that's high in London, low in Northern Ireland. Uh, Alex and Andrew, do you think, is there a need to be a bit more focused in, in the offer in being clear that actually we can only make progress on some of these things in some of these places rather than spreading it so so thinly? Well, I mean, that... that relates to the, uh, the devolution point again, you know, you're, you're only going to really know what works in, in Northern Ireland or Cornwall or Newcastle if you're based there. But where I'm, you know, quite keen to give credit, and I think particularly to, to, to Neil O'Brien, is that uh, Neil's been around the Whitehall block quite a lot. And, I mean, I draw a distinction between what I'd like to see, ultimately, which is actually a network of unitary authorities across the country that have a huge amount of local di discretion and actually aren't in this sort of client relationship with Whitehall, aren't having this, uh, the reason that the Institute for Government identified Mission 12 devolution uh, deals by 2030 as being so difficult, is that each one having to be bespoke and negotiated and, and the local area having to say to Whitehall, well, do you approve of us doing this? And Whitehall saying, well, only if you do it like this and this will we, will, will we give you the money. 
But Neil, Neil is keeping it real, as it were. He knows Whitehall, he knows the system, and therefore I, I'm, I'm hopeful that the initial set of, of deals is something that will be learnt from, that can be less bespoke and actually just presented as a baseline of local government responsibilities. But I think Neil knows the system well enough to distinguish between what some of us would ultimately like to see and what's actually achievable within the machine that has operated the way it's operated for decades. You know, uh, and it's not, it's not as if like, you know, centralization started in, in, in 2010 or in 1997 or in 1979 even. And I'm sorry to go back to this century old thing, but I'd, I'd actually pinpoint it as being um, the regional food boards that Lloyd George set up in 1916, uh, where Whitehall rather than local area determined allocations. Baldwin government did quite a lot of sort of lower level centralization. And then obviously it erupted in 1945 and particularly when Herbert Morrison lost the argument with an iron Bevan over having local authority control over the NHS, which Bevan said, there will be no local authority involvement in the NHS. And you can pinpoint a lot of the massive centralization we have as a country uh, from that row. Yeah, I think this is you know, one of the government's great political challenges, having created this what is no doubt you know, an effective brand, because that penetration, even if the understanding works, the penetration is strong, which is why it's very hard to move off that frame, frankly. But the problem with it is that, and I'm going to mispronounce it, but hopefully people know what I mean, but it's, a, it's become a Rorschach test. You know, I look at it and I see English devolution. And then when I talk to, to Lisa Nandy, who's obviously our Shadow Secretary of State in this area, she says, yes, but Alex, you see English devolution in everything. <laughs> you know, you, you see it in foreign policy. Because that's, for me, what I, you know, one, one of, you know, my compelling reasons for being politics and what I think you know, would make a fundamental difference in this country. Um, but then for, if you walk down my street or sort of my marketplace, it's a lot of other things. For some it's poor, you know, it's, not, it's the high streets itself, for others it's the facilities, others it's the opportunities. And that's the problem, it's perhaps everybody, you know, the, you're then having to answer all of, all of the challenges under one brand and one programme, well obviously you're going to fail there. I think you can, you can start to have a better conversation around who is to be levelled up and who is to be not, if you move away from the, well, it's, it's a contest of baubles. Because no matter how nice your community is, you could always have a nicer health centre or you could have a, you know, you, know, you could have a better high street. Um, you'll always have a good case anywhere for, for investment. But if you put it perhaps a little bit more close to what Vicky says around, you know, schools, quality of schools, quality of teaching and learning, okay, well, then it becomes a bit more obvious. And if you've already got a high propensity of, good and outstanding schools, and I, I don't think you feel you'll miss out as much if the investment is going into making sure there's good and outstanding schools everywhere. You could say the same things about health services, which perhaps would be harder to map geographically, but you could, you could still do that. If you, if you get back to focusing on services that actually change people's lives and opportunities, I think that's then a more, an easier argument to say, well, the good news is you already have a, you know, top level services. So in, on this particular program, it's not for you. Uh, that's not to say there won't be you know, still a bit of latent cynicism, but at least then that's closer, because if it's about baubles, you lose every time, I think. Andrew, you, you touched in your opening remarks on the challenges of devolving more powers down to a local area. Mm. Now, perhaps the public aren't going to see all of this kind of wiring behind the scenes, but mm. what, what would you like to see on that, and what do you think is possible before we get to 2024 and actually shifting some of that? Well, the art of the possible in this has to be constrained not by a whole range of things we've discussed, but also by the fact 
And we have to remember this in terms of, and, and you know, I'll, I'll just dip my toe into the partisan for a moment of, of promising lots of extra things in an environment when the percentage of tax in the economy is the highest it's been since just after the Second World War. So, uh, you know, the expansion of the health e economy particularly has, has, has led to the public sector being as large as it's ever been, but in, in a very different set of proportions than it, than it used to be. So we all, I mean, obviously, probably not on the stump, that's a different thing, but you know, in terms of longer term policy analysis of how we're gonna get as we, where we want to get as a country, the idea that higher taxes and spending more uh, will achieve those, I, I think is, is not right because a higher percentage of tax, I think, will, will, will either suppress any economic growth we, we, we're trying to get in the next few years or actually pushes uh, into recession. And therefore, again, sorry, but it comes back to this. Mission 12 embeds the other 11 missions. Mission 12 is what actually makes this not a short-term political gimmick if, it, if Mission 12 works and is changed in the way that I, I think both Alex and I have outlined. That enables a different conversation about local priorities within an existing tax envelope and therefore makes it expectations more exciting because they're closer but actually more achievable as well. And so what, what concretely does that look like in terms of transfer of powers? Uh, well, I mean, one thing I think where, where a change of emphasis would be wel welcomed within this is this sort of moving Whitehall departments out around the country. You know, that has a benefit, uh, but I, I don't think you fundamentally change the Whitehall culture by having, uh, you know, bottom to upper middle management tiers somewhere else. As much as saying, instead of transferring a government department to a different place, we should transfer the responsibilities that that government department has to those places without transferring the government department. So I hope that whilst there's obviously a, a commitment to move government departments, be up to Wolverhampton and you've got, you know, Gateshead's been there a long time, Swansea and what have you, it is to, say, is to use that as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a jumping off point to actually doing that differently, that instead of moving people doing what they're doing now to somewhere else, is moving the doing of those things to the area in question. Alex, does that resonate with you? If, if, a, if this Conservative government started down that track and then a Labour government came in after the next election, would you want to continue with that same direction of travel? Because you Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I, I hope that, that pretty chimes quite closely to what I said in, in opening, really. Absolutely, if, if the government tomorrow wants to move a government department to Nottingham, that's wonderful, of course, we would welcome that with, with open arms. But the change that it would make to our community would be relatively small. What we'd much rather see is the functions from the centre transferred to us locally, from Whitehall to Town Hall, mm. because, you know, we think that in many aspects of British life, obviously skills was one that, that I mentioned, but there are others we do them better because we know our community, we know what our vision for the future is, we know what you know, sort of development in, in which industries we, we want to add jobs in, so I think we're, we're best placed to do that. So I, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's what it will be. I don't see that in the plans as formulated. That's, you know, and, and instead what the transfer of power is, is just this, I mean, this, this deals thing does my head in. I mean, I'm, you know, again, I, I, I'm a sunny disposition normally, but the one thing that gets me angry Every so often, I'll remember that in Manchester, they've got access to different powers 
than we have in Nottingham because someone in Whitehall at some point made an assessment of local leadership and the local model and said, well, they're worthy of it, but they're not worthy of it. That is absolute nonsense. By dint of our common personhood, we ought to have the access to those same opportunities, whether they like our leaders or whether they don't like our leaders. So, I, you know, again, this, one of the criticisms of the white paper is we're stuck in these deals and, again, this, this transactional, as, as, as Andrew very much mentioned, and I think a proper... You know, proper model of devolution that says actually, well, what powers are better held at a local level will transform place, will transform opportunities. Well, that should be true whether you're in Truro or anywhere, you know, in the south or anywhere, uh, on Berwick and the northern border of England. You pick anywhere you want; those are common, and you know that. But you'd certainly see from us a more meteor offer on that. And I actually think it would help Whitehall. <laughs> Because Whitehall having to track, or have we given skills to them, or have yeah, they got absolutely. this? Uh, and, oh, well, we're, we're running the skills agenda in this bit, but that bit's been done locally. Um, would actually help Whitehall. So, so what I'm saying, I think, is that Neil's operating within the art of the possible within the Whitehall machine, irrespective of partisan points. What I'm hoping is that, that the benefits that accrue from those aspirations lead to a greater realisation that more of that, without the conditions, without the differentiations, would actually be beneficial all round. But, you know, art of the possible within existing Whitehall frameworks and art of the possible within Parliament. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of MPs, particularly I would say from both parties, who don't have a local government background, who sort of see themselves almost as a mini-council that that's their job, whereas our job is to scrutinise legislation. Uh, I mean, again, constitutionally, and I'm on record in the Select Committee saying this already, it's interesting to me that town boards have a requirement for an MP to be on them, which is a requirement for an executive body to have someone from the legislature on it, because mm -hmm. Parliament isn't government, and it becomes more and more difficult to tell people that Parliament isn't government these days, and for the last 20 odd years, to be honest, because that distinction is, isn't so clear. And it does lead to a problem that if you are busy being a super councillor for your area, you're not giving yourself time to scrutinise the legislation that's going through Parliament as well. And as I say, that isn't a, that isn't a Boris Johnson or a Conservative Party point. That's a, a feature of a mixed executive legislative model. And having been in a different one, and irony alert here, as someone who went, went for Brexit, the, the separation of the legislature from the executive in the European and the United States institutions has quite a lot to be said for it in terms of providing for legislative clarity for very ambitious white papers like this one. I, I suppose it's quite interesting. I think we've almost heard two definitely linked but different arguments for devolution, what, one being all about the need for people to, to feel heard and sort of the importance of having a say at a community level. And I suppose if you're thinking about what's going to be achieved by 2024 and delivering on expectations, that's the kind of thing that mm. you'd be looking at. And then there's also the idea that if you devolve the right powers to the right level, that you can then make better economic decisions. Um, I wonder if those two things may at some point come into tension in terms of the, the level that you might like to devolve things to, because particularly if people have the, as, as Vicky said at the start, a kind of very local conception of community, but actually we don't think that skills policy should be at the, you know, the street level, or even the town level probably, it should be at kind of a, some kind of coherent economic
geography that helps you know, join up your skills policy with your transport policy and your innovation policy at a slightly mm. bigger level. Um, I suppose this is almost an, an, I don't know the answer to this, but do people have an affinity with the kind of metro mayor area or even the county area, or is it a much lo more local thing? And therefore, you know, are those two arguments for devolution actually somewhat in conflict? I suppose. Can I just come back on this? I, yeah. I think they can be the same conversation. Because what, so what I always used to say, you know, when I was on the council and we are going to the early phases of devolution, I said that we should be making a public commitment, you know, a kind of, it's obviously it's cheesy, but a one-in-one-out basis, that every power we get from central government to be done in Nottingham, we will push a power down, because actually in our council we do things for, uh, for local estates that they could do themselves or decisions that could be taken for themselves. So if, if you are getting things, you know, you, you talk about perhaps a sub-regional body, but if at a sub-regional level or local authority level you get more responsibilities, which is what you know, I think we ought to have, then it's a double devolution that says, what, what do we do then that communities ought to do, what, ought to do for themselves? So, so that's how I think those two things come together. I, I think that's right. And I think the other thing is, is it's almost like um, you know, the rings in an onion. So right now, a lot of the communities who are uh, most in need of really major change feel so divorced from Westminster mm. and Whitehall. And, and this very powerful sense that you know, people in Whitehall and Westminster, urban elites, don't have a, the first idea. They've very rarely lived the kind of life I lead. So I think as you get closer, it gets a little bit easier to see the connection. But I, but I think you're right, there is a tension. So I think there's a tension when you talk about things like transport. Uh, and you talk about, you know, there's a lot of talk about connecting people to cities. And people go, well, that's not what I want. I want a bus that gets me from <laughs> this side of town to where I need to work. Um, because actually, I don't want to have to go to a city because then you're not levelling up my community. You're driving me out of it again. You might be driving me to a nearer city. But if you're saying it's only kind of cities that can have the good opportunities, you're not levelling up my community. So, but I, I totally agree that actually keeping pushing things further and further to local communities is probably a, a really good outcome. Before we go to um, Q&A, Tom, can I just come back to you on one point that Andrew sort of brought up, which is the fact the government is constrained in terms of public spending. Mm. So from, from your work, what, what does that suggest about what is possible, perhaps without overall spending more? How could you do that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that's obviously the, the kind of big question, really, is how do you spend the money Better. And certainly, you know, we, we've had events here with, with Andy Haldane and Neil O'Brien who've emphasised that as much as there could be any new money, um, what you can do is, if you just move 1% of the existing very big amount of government spending, you can make a big difference. I suppose that there's a big challenge there that if, if that's really a very input-focused way of looking at things, and if you're spending more money in one place, you're by necessity spending less somewhere else. And so I think the focus really does need to be on actually where, where's the best bang for your buck and what are the types of policies that can make the most difference. And we, we've been doing some work looking, you know, wh where is the evidence strongest in skills and transport and innovation policy for the types of um, policies that are likely to make the most difference. And that, that does point to you know, certainly sort of level four and level five, kind of that, that mid-level tier of um, kind of apprenticeship qualifications seem to have very good returns, for example, so it may well make more sense to, to invest further there. Likewise, there's good evidence that um, you know, pu public support for R&D does tend to lead to, um, to um, good returns, at least in the longer term. So that there are things that you could do to try to, to spend money better. But I, I would caution the government, if you're just focused on kind of inputs about where you're spending money with 
like within the same programs, then arguably you could say that's really a, a leveling down thing as much as it is a leveling up thing because you're just spending more in one place by spending less somewhere else. Whereas actually if the focus is on where is the evidence, how can you spend money better? And certainly one thing that, that we found is that there is evidence out there and actually lots of the government's policies are, are doing their best to kind of, kind of fit with the evidence. But there's also a real paucity of, of evidence. And this actually comes back to, to a potential benefit of devolution as well. And if you have different approaches in different parts of the country, and importantly, if you also evaluate properly which policies are working and how that's leading through to outcomes, then you can actually build a better evidence base that actually these are the policies that are going to be most effective at driving local economic growth. Yeah, and evaluation. Mm. You know, I always used to say when I was leader of Derbyshire County Council, I, I yearned and longed for an officer to come to me and say, we've had a go at this project, we've tried it out and it's failed. Mm. And it hasn't worked. Because all the evidence you ever got, and it's the same in central and local, it's, oh, this has been brilliant. <laughs> we've done this and it's achieved this and this and it's been fantastic. You can't tell the wood from the trees. So the evidence thing is, is great. And it's evidence and people. And Andy, Andy Burnham said in... in I won't do this again, promise, but Andy, Andy Burnham said this in, in this levelling up Devo paper that we produced, that it, was, that, that, that it was data and people. So Andy Burnham said that when he was Secretary of State for Health, he would be presented with figures. When he was, when he's the mayor of, of Manchester with those health responsibilities, he knows which people are doing what, and he's therefore able to understand the real tapestry of the people in the area in question. But equally, um, I was able some years ago to sort of disaggregate the tech sector in Northamptonshire and its percentage of employment versus GVA. And I don't seem to be able to do that at the moment now uh, because of everything that's happened. So, so I think it's a combination of, of, of better and richer data back perhaps to the LSO1, LSO2 sort of level of data that we used to be able to access. Sorry, nerd moment there. <laughs> um, uh, and, 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 uh, but also that sort of people and personal relationships benefit as well. I'm really glad you've uh, expressed interest in evaluations. We, we definitely care about this, and we actually have another event on Monday to discuss exactly that question. What do we, have we been good at evaluating policy in the past? What do we know, and how could we do better to learn about what's working on levelling up? So please do join us for that as well on Monday. Um, so turning to questions that we've had uh, coming in from the audience then, um, if anyone in the room would like to ask a question, please do um, stick your hand up and I'll come to you. Um, just take one that's coming out online first. Um, this is from an anonymous questioner, but asks, the government makes the assumption that pride has, quote, diminished and needs to be, quote, restored. Do you have views on this? Is this actually a proper characterisation of how people around the UK feel? Vicky, perhaps I'm come to you first. Pride has diminished. Uh, is that what people are looking for? Not immediately, because pride is quite a long way from where we are right now. Um, so, yes, great aspiration. Everyone would love to be really proud of the neighbourhood. That's Right now, they just want it to work better and be a better place to live and bring their children up with more things to do. So I think pride is quite a long way off. Uh, I think you know I think you can be content and have good well-being and be happy without necessarily being hugely proud of your community. So I, I, I'm not sure that is the holy grail right now. Okay, Alex, do you? Yeah, I mean I, I would never contradict a I mean, it doesn't feel that people are any less identified with their communities, whether that's at an estate level, a town level, a city level, but that it's just been replaced by frustration because they look at it and 
you know, they see that things aren't as they ought to be or as they don't want them to be, and therefore that, you know, that saddens them. So it's not that, you know, you've got a collection of people not in, uh, that now have a loose citizenship, a loose connection. The connections are as strong as ever. The problem is if that pushes you, because one of the really visible manifestations on that, and one of the things that comes back certainly to us, you know, as, as constituency MPs, is around high streets. So it, there's then this push, so we've got to do something about the high street. And as I say, you can, we're, we're here for hanging baskets and heritage frontages, but those alone then won't change those underlying factors. So it, it, the danger is if you just chase these kind of cosmetic fixes to say, oh, look, you've somewhere to be proud of again. I think people are too smart for that. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. But I think also people, the focus for on the high street has probably shifted from being the, where you have M&S and Debenhams and you have your engine of, of local growth to being the place where people can sort of safely assemble and socialise and, 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 and come in for things in the same way as the high street was back 100, 150 years ago. It's sort of gone into all being about retail and then uh, back out again. So, so I think it, it, there is, a, you know, a, a sense disjointed with younger people and the rest of us looking at our phones all the time, having our different sort of social groups and a lack of access to local news and rather peer group news and gossip about a specific thing that you're interested in, which might not have anything to do with your local area. So working on a pride and a, a place to be, I think, I think is important. But I think I agree with Alex that the, Sometimes, actually, an economic output of an area doesn't have anything to do with local pride at all. I mean, you know, probably the locus, lo, pro, proudest local place going is, is Liverpool, but, you know, it's not had the, mm. you know, the, the sunniest economic uh, performance over the decades, but it's still an identified place that people are proud of, but want to be more proud of. So I agree it's not the name of the game, but I think it has some value. I think just on that point, pride is often about something like your local football team, yeah. and nothing really to do with your community whatsoever, but that's something that you can identify with and feel enormously proud of, and maybe that's one of the reasons that Liverpool, you know, one of the contributors, because they have such a strong sense of self. Sorry, Andrew. Um, so I'll take a couple of questions, I think there's one here, and I think there's another one over there, I'll take them both together and then we can... Um, we've heard that uh, people tend to trust local leaders more than... MPs in Westminster. Um, but on the other hand, in the Metro Mayor elections in South Yorkshire last week, turnout was 26%, mm. and in some areas where there were no local elections at the same time, it was under 20%. So I wonder whether, do you feel people are excited about the prospect of directly elected mayors, um, and they see it as, as the way to, um, to really kind of boost the representation uh, of their regions? And the other one. Hi, I'm Hamish, and uh, I was wondering about, uh, obviously, for levelling up, it's, I can see the benefit of uh, devolved powers if people know their local area better, but there are also like uh, a lot of macro issues facing the country, such as uh, net zero. And do you think that, um, for example, in Cumbria, uh, the local authority decides to uh, build a coal mine because it will bring prosperity to the local area, but that will affect... Um, more sort of nationwide issues and aims that we need to get to as well. Great. Um, Andrew, okay, well, well, I think the mayoral point is an important one, and I'd add to that the Bristol result, where people have actually mm. voted not to have a mayor anymore, which again uh, means that over-prescribing from the centre 
you people need to have this model in order to access what we're telling you is good for you, uh, you know, isn't, it doesn't necessarily follow through with, lo lo with local results. Um, so, I mean, I'm going to say two contradictory things here, which is one that, you know, I think some areas would prefer a leader model and some areas would prefer a mayoral model, and I don't think that should affect the level of devolution that they, they receive. Uh, but I also think that if we were in, a, in somewhere like, like Denmark or Germany that had a very strong local government structures, you could have lots of them. But when you're in a country that is already over-centralized and therefore powers at the local level and respect, lack of respect, that the center has for the local um, across all colors of government over the last couple of generations is as low in England as it is, a unitary model makes more sense because you actually need a stronger local force to stand up to the center than you do in a place like Denmark or Germany where those things are an, assu as an assumption. Now that leads me to constitutional change, which is a whole other IFG event, but, but a constitutional change that actually gave a reformed unitary structure of local government a constitutional place within the British constitution, I think would go a long way with this. Uh, on the net zero point, yes, obviously there will be always be national parameters and so on. All I would say with the Cumbria one is that, that I actually think it contributes to, to net zero in the sense that if you use low carbon production techniques to produce steel using coal, but you can use carbon capture and all sorts of things in a UK context, rather than having it produced in, in China with, you know, with incredibly dirty coal and then ship it halfway across the world, you're probably achieving a local outcome and contributing to net zero at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with just what Andrew said there around it, the, the levels of power should not be based on the um, on, on the leadership model. And that's one of the kind of key priorities for us to try and change during the process of the law, of the of the bill going through Parliament, because at the moment that is the case. I, I think that's wrong. I mean, on the substantive point of, I think if we look for stories in turnout to reflect enthusiasm, I think that would put push us away from any sort of directly elected post because no, no, no elections have less turnout than the, PCC, the police and crime commission elections and you know mayorals too. I've always thought that the low turnout in local elections probably reflects a perception of what's at stake rather than interest uh, and I, you know I, so I think that if, if, if there was more at stake locally you'd see better enthusiasm and, and participation. I, I think I would rely more on, kind of on, on what Vicky says in terms of because the, the polling does consistently say that people have greater trust in in those locally to make decisions. I, I always think it's funny that, you know, I, I was on my council at a difficult period where we had to make some, you know, lots of very difficult decisions around shutting services, and you were kind of grimly respected. As someone locally doing their best, they might not agree with you, might not particularly like you, but you're doing your best. And then I come now to Parliament, I'm in opposition, I don't make any decisions at all, and I'm just broadly seen as a chump. Just a, just a chump. <laughs> for no particular reason, often by the same person. Those people think, I've known, you've known me for 11 years, but, but they, Whereas before then, there was a kind of presumption that I was just doing my best. There's a presumption that I'm doing my worst. So this, the, that, that, that obviously reflects what Vicky's talking about. So, but I just think putting more at stake would be a way to kind of boost enthusiasm. I mean, I would see net zero as one of, the, one of those kind of key defining missions like, um, like foreign policy that's national level. You know, I, I would largely say that, that in, a, in a proper devolved model, you'd want to be the, the, the maximum capacity for communities to diverge, even in ways that you might think in a different community is daft. I don't think that's true around net zero. You know, whether Cumbria is a, a good idea or not, it's a slightly separate issue. But in general, you know, net zero is a 
existential level challenge for us as a country and must be kind of attacked in that way. Very compatible with levelling up though, it will involve new industries and new jobs and skilled work. We can have a say on our plan over where those go and obviously to then skill people up in those communities to meet those jobs. We should not see, and we will lose a public conversation of net zero is just seen as here's the list of things you like doing you can't do anymore. We're not going to win on that argument. There has to be a sense of this is what it means to your community in a really positive sense as well. I think the only thing I would really add to, to the first point is it's very easy to overestimate how much the public understand the structures of government, whether that's national, local. For most people, it's just not something they're thinking about other than when they get angry. Um, you know, we see relatively low levels of turnout even in general elections. So I think that it, it, I agree it's not necessarily a potential lack of opportunity, but at the moment, I think people just there's a risk of it another, being another talking shop. And so when they talk about local things, I think they really want to see it. They want to see it, they want to feel it, they want to feel it's accessible uh, and not another machinery of bureaucracy. Great. Um, so I've wrapped together a couple of questions that have come in online. Um, one, again, anonymous, asks, are we yet again striving to define or make meaningful a phrase which has no rigorous content? What evidence is there that government has the ability to generate robust economic growth and its locations? Um, and I, I think sort of related, so I'll, I'll put them together. Um, someone else has asked what role the financial services sector, I think we could broaden that out to other parts of the private sector, can play in the levelling up agenda. So is, is there something, what's the role for the government in driving this better growth across different parts of the country and to what extent it, is this private sector and what does government need to do to make that happen? Tom, I'll start with yeah. you. Yeah, um, well, I think it's, it's definitely a fair challenge. And it's certainly true that there isn't just a kind of off-the-shelf blueprint that the government can pick and sort of pull a lever that says higher economic growth in, in this region or that region. You know, it, it's, com it's complicated to, to, to drive, drive higher growth in places. It's not something that the public sector kind of on its own can just choose to do, which I guess, as you say, Gemma, is linked to that second question about what's the private sector going to do. And in a world where it's not going to be a lot of extra public money, and where there's a real focus on improving productivity, which ultimately is going to be driven more through the private sector than it is through the public sector. The, the role of the public sector, I suppose, is in trying to enable those in the private sector and getting the incentive structures right. So if, if lots, of the, so lots of the differences in economic growth or certainly economic performance between different areas can be accounted for by the sort of the skill level of the people in those places, and that's partly because, you know, graduates move to cities and, and so on, you know, people can move, so they're, not, they're not stuck where they're, or they don't have to stay where, where they're born. Um, so what's actually going to change the skill mix in a place? Well, partly you need to improve the skills of people, maybe the public sector can mostly do that, but if there's not also um, you know, stuff to, to get the private sector there, then people with more skills will just move, you know, you'll, you'll be like a sieve, you know, you sort of put more skilled people in, but they just, just move. And that means that you need the, the types of policies that are also going to attract the private sector and good jobs and, and businesses to those places as well. And that, that could include you know, the way that you, you develop your, your infrastructure to, to make it a, a place that's better connected to, to other parts of the country. And there could be specific incentives that, that you need to do. But I think really the, the, the kind of economic question of levelling up is, is not so much how can the public sector drive this, but how can the public sector incentivize the, the private sector to do so. Andrew, do you have any? 
Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of sense there. And also sort of things, things crop up within the private sector um, that government hasn't really sort of planned for. I mean, government's talked about home working a lot over the years. We used to talk about doing it at the council meetings. Everyone said, oh, no, it's too, it'll never happen. But, you know, it did because it, it had to. And that leads to some private sector investment and influence in unexpected ways. I'm on my Easter holidays in Scarborough, and Scarborough's really turning round at the moment because lots of people who can work from home and do their own thing think, well, if I can work from home, I'd like to work somewhere nice by the sea. So, you know, those can't really be accounted for. I mean, of course, the problem with a massive working from home revolution is if you can work from home the job is working from home in Scarborough rather than London, then it could be, you know, working in, in, um, uh, in, in India or, or, or Thailand as well. So, you know, that, that has its challenges coming up as well. In terms of um, finance, though, I, I, would, I, I, I would hope that Treasury get more on board with, with levelling up with some of those incentives for the private sector to support the, 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 the 12 missions. Another outcome from the report we did was that when you've got a sort of really big hitter like Michael Gove as Secretary of State, then having the former local government the department, which much to my chagrin doesn't have local government in the title anymore, um, uh, as a Secretary of State, then I think you can get the delivery. But for the endurance, the message from, um, from Lord O'Neill and from Andy Burnham and from Greg Clark was that Greg Clark, when he was in the forerunner of DLUC, stuck a load of the big outcome measures that he wanted to achieve into the cabinet office because he recognised the way, ironically, central government isn't devolved either, was that you had to get things in the cabinet office in number 10 or the treasury for them to really endure and to get there. Now, with, with Gove there, I think that's okay for now. But, but, it, but inevitably, for this to continue and endure to, to be successful, massive treasury buy-in is needed, both in terms of money going out, but also in terms of the tax structure to in, in, encourage levelling up and investment as well. Thank you, Alex. Would you like to... Um, I'll just say two things quickly. Of course. Um, just to give you a sense of where the public are at on this, so this new local uh, work that we're publishing in, in publishing, in terms of confidence levels that national politicians can tackle issues, on levelling up, 17% feel confident and 54% don't feel confident. So I think there is a, a big question mark amongst the public about whether the government can do this. And I don't think that's necessarily about this government, but no. just the whole notion that Westminster and Whitehall drive it. Um, on the second point, uh, I mean, absolutely, I think the private sector, but also other sectors. And we've done a lot of work um, with higher education. And if you have a university, then that often attracts kind of innovation and R&D and so on, but also anchor businesses then often locate near a university. And it can really change a local community quite quickly. Um, so I think absolutely there is a role for the financial services sector we've seen do that in many places. So I think absolutely there's a role for business and indeed wider than that. Yes, yeah, so to, to sort of address the, the points in reverse, you know, if, if we, the temptation can be to kind of, to fall back on the public sector because those are the levers we have to pull more quickly. But that, the answer to you know, better growth and growth in, in places that haven't had growth for, uh, for many years is not going to be through development in the public sector. The best contribution the public sector can make to my community in that agenda is to make sure we've got really good schools so that when someone's setting up a business 
or you know, that, or you know, thinking of relocating or moving to a different country, that they don't look and think, well, my staff aren't going to want to come because the quality of school is not there. And you can read the same across for healthcare, and certainly the same for crime also. So that that's one of the major ways making is the most invi investable environment that we can be. I think is the public sector's contribution to that. And then on on the first point, I mean, we are trying to make a really effective political slogan a meaningful bit of public policy. We just are. Um, but that's not to say that <clears throat> what it's tapped into and the connection that's made with the public hasn't, you know, isn't a real thing. It definitely is. Regional inequalities are bad if you live in that region, but also bad for us, for, for the collective also. So we should want to do something about that. And then that kind of final point in that question, which is, uh, what, you know, can governments even make that happen? Well, you know, Thomas said that there aren't easy off-the-shelf solutions, and it may just come down to eventually a point of political difference. I believe that active government can make an impact if you choose whether it's through spending decisions or incentivizations, whatever it is, you can shape your economy. I don't think the market should be left unfettered. Others will take a completely different view to that, and that's why we have political parties, that's why we have elections, and you kind of, you know, you pay your money to take your choice. But I think we can, and I think we shouldn't see those inequalities as, in as inevitable, and I think we should see it as a core job of government to do something about it. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, that brings us to the end of our event today. Could have carried on uh, with this very interesting discussion for a lot longer. Um, thank you very much to my panelists, to Alex, Vicky, Andrew, and Tom. Thank you to all of you for joining us in the room and online, and special thanks to Lloyds for supporting today's event. Um, as I mentioned, we do have another related event coming up on Monday around the evaluation of government spending and what government already knows and needs to learn about what's effective in levelling up. So please do join us on Monday at two o'clock for that if you can. Um, just thank you very much for joining us and thank you to my panel.